Kayla Berg was 15 when she disappeared back in 2009. Somebody knows something. Please, for the love of God, if you know something, just tell law enforcement, the FBI, any agency. Just help me get my daughter back and help me find her and get some answers. And if Kayla, you still happen to see this somewhere, oh God, I love you and I just want you. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, an ongoing investigation into the unsolved 2009 missing persons case of 15-year-old Kayla Berg. Originally, I had planned on releasing an episode exposing Arnie Anderson as a parasite. But after giving it a lot of thought and talking to a few listeners, I've decided that he's not worth the time or attention. I have a lot of information on him, and if need be, I can easily revisit it in the future. But right now, hopefully everyone sees him for what he really is, and hopefully he goes away and we never have to think about him again. So instead of giving a predator his 15 minutes of fame, I have an update on Tina Davison. A few weeks ago, a woman, who I will not name, messaged me on Facebook, asking me to call her. She said she could help clear up some details on Tina's case. Unfortunately, I was working and would not be able to call her for a few hours, so I asked her to just message me the details. I wish I would have just called her so I could play the audio, but regardless, here's what she said to me. The woman's sister attended the same academy that Tina went to. Her family lived a few blocks away from the Vandaloops. Their house was actually on the path that Tina probably would have taken that night to get from the Stoffels to the Vandaloops. Her father would drive her sister to school every day. He was a tall man with a thin to medium build. His black hair was usually slicked back, or sometimes he kept it in a crew cut. On the evening of March 27th, 1973, when the nightly news reported that Tina's body had been found, her sister was shocked, screaming, I go to school with that girl. Her father's reaction, however, was an interesting one. His response was, she shouldn't have been hitchhiking. Her mother thought it was odd since that detail had not yet been released that police thought Tina may have been hitchhiking. A week or so later, the woman's mother and father went fishing at her father's usual fishing spot in Pikes Creek, a river in Kenosha that connected to Lake Michigan. There, her mother spotted clothing near or under a large rock. She says they were bloody and matched the clothing that the news described Tina as last being seen in. Her mother wanted to call the police, but her father refused to allow her, stating they shouldn't get involved woman told me she does believe that her mother alerted police, but is unaware if the police collected the clothing or not. In April of 1973, not even a month after Tina's death, her father bought a new dark green station wagon. Before that, 
She thinks that he owned a four-door car that was possibly teal in color. Fast forward three months after Tina's death, and her father commits suicide. Her mother was divorcing him. He was very violent with the woman's mother, and it's believed that he also molested a family member. Her dad was questioned for being a peeping Tom several times. He was known to stay out all night. Her mom believed he frequently stayed at the Bluebird Motel off of Sheridan Road. She said he was a pretty sick individual. After her father's death, they found something interesting in the rafters of the basement. They found all the articles on Tina's death that her father had clipped from the papers and hidden. It made her mother think back to all the odd things since Tina's death. So she called the detectives and told them everything. The woman I spoke with called about 20 years ago and spoke to police, figuring they might have some DNA or something they could test. The detectives asked questions and also asked if her brother would be willing to submit his DNA if needed because they would need male DNA to compare. Eventually he called her back and stated that they would not be pursuing it anymore, that an inmate incarcerated in the Milwaukee prison had already confessed to the crime. Unfortunately, the man who confessed later recanted his confession. Apparently, he did this with more than one crime. A lot of criminals do this. Sometimes they use it to try to plea bargain or just to get out of jail for the day to show police where a body is disposed of, knowing very well that there's no body, and they just get a free field trip out of jail for the day. Everything she told me seemed to fit perfectly. When I first started looking into this case, I said it was my best bet that it was a random creep who picked her up hitchhiking. It was very likely that she could have easily crossed paths that night with him. I gave Deputy Chief Scholes at Racine Police Department another call. He was unaware of the woman's father and was very interested in speaking with her and her brother if he was willing to help. He said he will exhaust all efforts looking into it. The woman also called Schultz to tell him what she knew. She also gave him her brother's DNA profile. He didn't say for sure he was going to test it, just trying to uh, rather gather as much information as he could to see if he has enough to make a call on doing the testing. Now, I don't know how much it costs to test the DNA, but from what I can gather, this is the best evidence they've had in probably decades. Despite all the tunnel vision I got looking into this case, whether it was the witch hunt, satanic panic, or one of the more well-known killers of this era, the biggest tip I received came out of nowhere. It seems to be exactly what I originally concluded, just a random monster, a chance encounter. Maybe Fratter was right. He said Tina claims to have not known the killer. He also claims he checked for the killer psychically later in life, and it seemed that the killer was dead, possibly from suicide. So that's where we stand now. I didn't name the man accused because I promised to protect the identity of the woman who reached out to me, and I keep my promises. If I hear anything else from this woman or from Deputy Chief Scholes, I will keep everyone up to date. As you know, this past Saturday, August 11th, marked nine years since Caleb Berg's disappearance. Along with my brother, I traveled to Anago to attend the balloon release to honor her. Next week, I will be reporting on the event. 
reflecting on the nine years that has passed since Kayla disappeared and see where we are headed with this podcast in the future. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.